Welcome to the Healthy Hair Podcast. Your host, Dr. Amy Brenner, is a board-certified OBGYN with additional certifications in functional and integrative medicine. This podcast is meant to help women find reliable, relevant information to help them feel better, look better, and live better. Here, you will hear in-depth information about hormones, sexual medicine, aesthetics, cosmetic gynecology, and functional medicine. Hi, I'm Dr. Amy Brenner, and I am here today with somebody that is super special, one of my really good friends and uh, partner in crime, if you will, that works with me every day and who is actually my personal doctor, and her name is Dr. Jennifer Tiemann. So welcome, Dr. Tiemann. Thanks for having me. Or you'll hear me call her Jen or JT. So... <laughs> Today, we're going to talk about something that she is actually just truly an expert in. She's actually uh, board certified originally in family medicine for the past 14 years and started off her career in in Chicago, uh, practicing family medicine with a focus in women's health. But I would imagine you saw a ton of diabetes when you were in private practice in family medicine. Yeah, diabetes, hypertension, high cholesterol, obesity definitely consumed my entire day. Yeah. Um, and you were doing like traditional medicine. Yeah, I was seeing anywhere from newborns to geriatrics, everything in between. Um, so I just want to go over some kind of the the boring statistics, but or I think statistics are boring, but uh, in this case, I think it's pretty shocking of that there are 34 million Americans that have diabetes. Um, actually, one out of 10 Americans have diabetes, and 90% of those are type 2, which is actually something that can be preventable. But probably at your old practice, you didn't do the prevention things because you were in a traditional model. No. And, you know, hindsight is always twenty twenty. But now one of the saddest things to me is that prediabetes is completely preventable, completely reversible. If only doctors had the tools um, and patients had the information to test and treat early. Yeah, I know. I, I look back at... What I used to do as a regular OBGYN, and I just want to like go back in time, or I wish I had all their contact info to say, can you come see me now? I, I like have new info for you about just so many things. So, um, but you mentioned prediabetes. I gave the stats for how many people have diabetes, but there are 84 million Americans have prediabetes. Yeah. And most family doctors don't do anything about that. They tell people to possibly watch what they're eating, um, maybe exercise a little bit more, but then see in a year. I know. Did you used to do that? I did. <laughs> I don't like to admit it now. I know. <laughs> it's true. Yeah. But today we're actually going to talk about a different topic, not prediabetes. We're actually going to talk about insulin resistance. So if you want to just tell all of our listeners what the difference is between insulin resistance, prediabetes, and diabetes. Yeah. So in my mind, insulin resistance develops a decade before your doctor finally comes to you and says, hey, you're pre-diabetic. And by pre-diabetic, they mean your blood sugar is elevated at that point. So in um, insulin resistance, the blood sugar levels are actually normal 
or in some cases, the person is hypoglycemic. So I hear those stories that you know someone eats something maybe sugary or a little bit more carbohydrates. Hour and a half later, they're feeling nauseous, they're craving sugar, they're feeling a little shaky. That's hypoglycemia caused by insulin resistance. So in the insulin resistance state, your body is actually producing more insulin because your body doesn't want to have high blood sugar. That insulin then directs sugar in the blood into the cells. The blood sugar itself drops and you have all those symptoms. And of course, that leads to weight gain. So it's the, the constant battle that men and women have where they're trying to diet, they're trying to exercise, they're not feeling well, they're gaining weight, and they don't understand why. Yeah. So, I mean, people come, how many, if, if you had a, just a dime for every time you had a patient that said, I, I have weight gain, I've done everything, like, I'd be a millionaire. Yeah, we, yeah, we would be we'd be uber wealthy. <laughs> um, but this is just one of those things. There's a several other things that can cause weight gain more than just diet and exercise. But this is definitely one aspect of hormones that can absolutely cause weight gain or people not being able to lose right, even though they might be doing a lot of the right things. Exactly. And that's what I tell people. It's not your fault. You know, you can have the best diet and exercise. This is a cell problem. And unless you use treatments that actually address the problem at the cell, the insulin resistance at the cell, they're never going to get better. Yeah. Um, what do you think of this analogy is sometimes when I talk to patients about insulin resistance is I tell them like, it's just this snowball rolling downhill is until you like get out of the cycle, it's just going to keep getting bigger and bigger and the problem's just getting worse until you just like put a stop to it. Yeah. And I think the other thing that propels that snowball is cortisol. Yeah. So we talk a lot about the stress response and kind of everything people have been going through, especially with the pandemic, and that's only fueling insulin resistance. And I know you've helped me a lot with that. Like, I, I, I'm actually kind of embarrassed to let people know what my my numbers are because I have a blood sugar problem and I feel like I, I don't eat perfect, but I feel like I eat really well. I exercise, but my blood sugar is, is not where I want it to be. And you keep telling me like, it's a cortisol problem. <laughs> it's true. Yeah. So, um, that's a whole, whole other issue. Uh, so in our practice, we, uh, we do a lot of testing for insulin resistance, and I think it's important for people to know their numbers. I know when I talk to patients, they're like, oh, well, I don't have diabetes. My family doctor already checked for that. So, Yeah, the hemoglobin A1C is definitely a good starting point, but it's just the tip of the iceberg. So you really need a fasting blood sugar, a fasting insulin level, and then more importantly, um, a two-hour insulin level and blood sugar. So we have a test that we refer to as our bagel test. We also have gluten-free options, of course, where we're actually trying to figure out the insulin response based on a carbohydrate load. And that really, if you do not do the second part of that testing, the two-hour testing, you'll miss up to 40% of people who have insulin resistance and are missed by their family doctors. Yeah. Because if your blood sugar is elevated, you're, you've bypassed the insulin resistance part. Like you're actually in the, the pre-diabetes part. Exactly. 
And then as that process goes on and on and blood sugar continues to be higher, then you enter diabetes. So what's the diagnosis of diabetes or what's the cutoff range that you think traditional family medicine doctors use to diagnose diabetes? And like you and I, you mentioned earlier, you and I see family doctors saying, oh, you don't have diabetes, like see you later. Yeah, that would be the hemoglobin A1C is 6.5. We used to talk about a fasting blood sugar of over 126 also. So for people that don't know, a hemoglobin A1C is like your average blood sugar over three months. Correct. So, so that's what diabetes is. And then what would the definition of pre-diabetes be? Hemoglobin A1C between 5.7 and 6.4%. Yeah. And that is so many people. So many people. And they're told it's normal. Yeah. You're yeah, normal. You're normal. Is just like kind of obesity, like diabetes, pre-diabetes, and insulin, as I tell people, like it's not like a light switch where, you know, you don't have diabetes and then you flip the switch. Okay, you have diabetes, kind of like obesity. You don't go from, you know, you have a perfect body weight to, okay, one day you're obese, you start gaining weight. Or in this case, you know, your insulin starts going up, then your blood sugar is going up. And then one day you're a diabetic if you don't do anything about it. Yeah. No, it's so, such a gradual process. And I think that's what's so sad is that so much can be done for these people at earlier stages if they would just have the information. So who should be tested for prediabetes or insulin resistance or, you know, should everybody be tested or, you know, more pe some people are more likely to have it than others because I know there are risk factors. I know one of my risk factors is I had PCOS, um, which that's a whole other topic of polycystic ovary syndrome where the, the root cause is really insulin resistance and um, and chronic stress of, you know, delivering babies for all those years and not sleeping and opening my own practice and those kinds of things. But I know there's lots of other risk factors that people need to be aware of. Yeah. I mean, I really think any woman over age 30 should know her numbers. Yeah, so maybe it's not it's something that you check every single year if you've had pretty normal levels. But beyond that, super important to to, yeah. to know. I agree. I think like when we first started doing this kind of test, I wasn't doing it on everybody. Like if somebody had a normal body weight, I was like, oh, yeah, you're, the yield of finding something is low. But then since we've been testing it is you can't look at somebody and know what their numbers are or what their insulin or blood sugar is. Absolutely. I mean, being overweight, um, having difficulty losing weight, those are going to be risk factors, but it's it's so much more than just body weight. Um, anybody who's over the age of 45 is at a higher risk. If you have a family history of diabetes, um, if you have a history, a personal history of gestational diabetes, or even just failing the glucola test. I ask my patients about that all the time. And to me, that's a huge red flag. If they oh. say, oh, yeah, I had to go back and, and repeat it with the three hour, but then they said I was fine. Hmm. To me, um, that's that's a huge red flag. Yeah, that's 50, a good one. I think the statistic is 50% of women with gestational diabetes will go on to develop diabetes in their lifetime. So, yeah. Which so is really scary yeah. because, I mean, that's a whole other discussion topic of how scary 
diabetes can be absolutely as a disease or uncontrolled diabetes, I should say. Absolutely. Um, other risk factors, if you have to be on steroids, so that can be for a lot of you know chronic disease, bowel disorders. Um, we talked about if you are overweight or obese, um, race matters. So bigger risk if you're Black, Hispanic, Native American, or Asian. Um, and of course, a sedentary lifestyle. Yeah. So we call it the the bagel test in our office because people eat a big load of carbohydrates. And sometimes I joke with patients of like, you know, put a birthday candle on it, celebrate, because hopefully that's the last time you ever eat a bagel because there's just so much carbohydrates in that. Um, and I tell people, hopefully you're never doing this. I remember when I did that test, uh, I'm like, I felt awful eating a whole uh, bagel with jelly of just yeah. doing the test. Yeah. So people who are following lower carbohydrate and you ask them to do that, they feel absolutely sick. And it's just the testament to the hypoglycemia, what insulin can do symptomatically. Yeah. So if you just want to tell everybody like what numbers we're looking for, we went through the numbers of what diabetes is, what pre-diabetes is, but how do we diagnose insulin resistance? Yeah. So we'd like your fasting blood sugar to be under 85, your fasting insulin level to be under 7. Um, we'd like your two hour after the bagel, two hour blood sugar to be under 110 and your two hour insulin to be under 25. In most cases, your average hemoglobin A1C with those numbers is going to be around 5.1, 5.2. So what do we do about it if somebody has insulin resistance, which obviously lots of people have insulin resistance because if whatever, 100 million plus Americans have diabetes or prediabetes, they started there by having insulin resistance. It's just not many people are testing that early for it. So I would never minimize the importance of your diet. So that's really where I start with my patients and then trying to really customize to them what type of diet is going to work with their lifestyle. Um, lots of data on ketogenic diet, reversing diabetes, prediabetes, insulin resistance. I'm also a big fan of fasting. And I've incorporated that a lot, um, but really try to meet people where they are and find something that's going to work for them. But beyond diet, as I mentioned earlier, you can have a low carbohydrate diet and still have insulin resistance. And then it's really about using the correct either prescription medications or supplements to treat insulin resistance on the cell level. Yeah. So metformin is one of them, and I actually take metformin because I have a problem with my blood sugar. Not, I personally don't have a problem with insulin. Um, I have a problem with blood sugar, most likely related to cortisol. So I take metformin to help lower blood sugar. And then there's just some data that metformin actually makes you live longer. But when I first, when you first gave me a prescription for metformin, like it just, I don't, you don't, I didn't feel good. Uh, is I needed to know where the bathrooms were. And so there's definitely some side effects of metformin. I say that is the number one side effect, uh, GI upset. I really find when people are following lower carb and trying to avoid sugar that most people tolerate it pretty well, but it's not universal. There's definitely a curve. And so my you know, personal preference is to start low. Um, I like extended release versions. I like to start once daily dosing. And then as people are tolerating it, most people are going to have to bump up the dose. They're not going to get the desired benefit on the lowest dose, but give it some time, stick to that you know, lower sugar. Um, 
and most people do okay with it. But it is. It's one of my favorite medications because of all the added benefits, antioxidant, anti-inflammatory, potentially some anti-cancer properties. I feel like on the longevity side of medicine, you hear about metformin a lot. And I love any type of thing where we can get that dual benefit, not just with blood sugar. Yeah, I agree. It's one of the few actually prescription drugs that we write in our practice. Yeah, I can think about three. I know. (laughs) But some people, they just can't tolerate metformin. They've tried it before. They want no part of it. And so I know you and I, mainly you, but uh, talk to a lot of people about, well, what are some alternatives? Or if somebody has severe insulin resistance, like I I literally actually just came out of a room and somebody's insulin level was 174. And with our therapy, it was down to seven. That's incredible. Yeah. And combination therapy, probably. So I I will use metformin alone, but I'm also, I really like to use the herbals um, to try to augment what metformin can do on that cell level. So I'm a really big fan of berberine. Um, Berberine has a lot of properties that are similar to metformin. It also is an anti- um, biotic. And so I use it a lot on our gut health side. Um, But I've gotten some great results combining berberine with things like alpha lipoic acid, cinnamon bark, vandal sulfate. And so I like to use a lot of combination products, all again, addressing that cellular response. So you hear cinnamon. So what if someone's like, well, I'll just put some cinnamon on my food. Is, Is that good enough? It doesn't work in exactly the same way. So it won't hurt. Do some nice flavoring, but no, I don't think you're going to get the same health benefits. Yeah. You mentioned fasting, and that's something uh, uh, I just started, and I think that's a great topic that's uh, kind of up and coming, but I started that, and the hardest part for me is I really liked cream in my coffee, so going to black coffee was difficult at first, and so for a while there, I was like, okay, well, I'll do black coffee during the week, but on the weekends, I'm going to have cream in my coffee. And what's weird is just by adding that cream in my coffee first thing in the morning is I felt like I was hungrier throughout the day than on days when I just had black coffee. Just that little bit of cream probably caused a small insulin spike and it just starts out my day being hungry. Yes, I think there are so many misconceptions about fasting. And even though you know, you're, you feel like you're fasting when all you've had is coffee with a little bit of cream or a little bit of almond milk, you're breaking the metabolic piece of it and you're kind of shooting yourself in the foot. So I really try to counsel people on what's the appropriate way to fast. Yeah. Even like diet sodas. Again, at my old practice, so 10 plus years ago, I was a huge Diet Coke drinker because I thought zero calories. But, you know, I tell people, do you ever see somebody that's really healthy and in shape have a diet soda in their drink or in their hand? We've been we've been duped. It's the biggest dupe in American society. And no one really understands it. I like to explain a study where they actually used aspartame. And as soon as the aspartame hits your tongue, that spike of insulin. So your brain knows that you're getting sugar. It's the sweetness in it. Mm -hmm. You're going to have the same reaction as if you had a teaspoon of sugar. So I think when I explain it that way, people are like, okay, I understand now. It's all about the insulin response and why I've been duped, you know, for the last 10 years drinking Diet Coke. Yeah. So kind of crazy. All right. Well, Thank you so much for joining us today and talking about insulin resistance. And, you know, my just last advice to everybody is know your numbers. 
Thank you for listening to this episode of Healthy Her. You can find us on Instagram, Facebook and the web. Go to www.dramybrenner.com to learn more. This podcast is for general information only and does not constitute as medical advice, the practice of medicine, nursing or other healthcare services. No patient-physician relationship is formed. The information in the podcast and any references, material or links are at the sole discretion of the listener and not meant to be a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis or treatment. Listeners should not delay or disregard obtaining medical advice for any medical issues or diagnoses that they may have and should seek medical advice from their healthcare provider for any such conditions.